Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Whatever Wando. I am your host, Wando, and this week we're going to recap NFL Championship Weekend, and then we're going to dive into the controversy, one that has haunted one of my favorite teams in history, that is the Chicago White Sox, and we're going to talk about the Black Sox scandal. Strap in for this one, boys. Let's go. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Whatever Wando. I am your host, Wando. And like I said before, uh, today's episode is all about the Black Sox scandal, a scandal that has haunted me. Like, I'm not going to say it's haunted me, but it's like it's maligned one of my favorite teams. I am a White Sox fan, and people have brought up the Black Sox scandal so many times in my life, and it's like, okay, like I... (laughs) We'll get into it, obviously, but it's just like, all right, it's always something that's hanged o- like hung over the team. So we're going to dive into that this episode. But first, we're going to talk about NFL Championship Weekend. And I'm first going to start by saying a sentence I never thought I'd say out loud and also never on a podcast that I ran, which is the Bengals are in the Super Bowl, which is nuts to think about. So first of all, the Bengals, the turnaround from last year to this year is amazing. They did it like this wasn't a massive rebuild. This wasn't like, hey, we had a ton of like grade A free agency signings. They signed a bunch of like dudes who were pretty good, but no one like over the top. And then their major issues they needed to address, like everyone thought, all right, draft Panay Sewell. You need someone to keep Joe Burrow healthy because Joe Burrow looked good before he tore his ACL. The reason he tore his ACL is because he was running for his life because his offensive line couldn't protect him. So it's like, all right, draft Panay Sewell, draft Panay Sewell. And the Bengals are like, nah, we're going to take Jamar Chase. And I think Jamar Chase, and I thought he was a great wide receiver, but I'm like, uh, Joe Burrow can't throw him the ball or throw anybody the ball if he's on the ground. And they shut me up real quick. The offense has been really good this year. Joe Burrow still has been hit way too much, but you know they've had a dynamic offense. Uh, Jamar Chase is that dude. He is a generational talent. So is Joe Burrow. And also the fact with this wide receiving core, T. Higgins showed out this year. He didn't really do much last year. I felt like Tyler Boyd was getting more of the targets and stuff. But T. Higgins has had a great year. And then you still have Tyler Boyd. The fact that your one, two, three is Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd is a damn good luxury to have. Uh... Their tight end is really good. I'm blanking on his name. And then he got hurt in the Chiefs game, which is sad. Uh, I feel bad for him. So, you know, hopefully, you know, he heals up soon. But, yeah, you know, once again, going in, like, to actually talk about the game. It's 21-3. The Bengals are losing. And there would be no one who said, like, hey, Bengals, like, you weren't supposed to be here. Like, we get it if you get shelled. Like, we get it. But they didn't. They score a touchdown on like a little slip screen like pass to uh I think it's P Ryan. He he runs it in. And then it is 21-10 near the end of the half. The Chiefs are about to get the ball back uh after halftime, and it is the ultimate momentum swing. 
It is, uh, I think it's third down, and there's five seconds left. The Chiefs are out of timeouts. Instead of kicking a field goal, apparently Patrick Mahomes convinces Andy Reid to go for it, and Patrick Mahomes checks down to Tyreek Hill, and Tyreek Hill can't get past Eli Apple. Time expires, no extra points. First of all, I will say, I can't blame Mahomes for making the throw because, like, if you were to tell me, hey, like, in, like, a five-yard radius, Tyreek Hill has to beat one guy, I'd take my odds with Tyreek Hill. But when you then look at it by the end of the game, it's brutal. You know, that ball needs to go in the end zone or out of bounds. So they get no points, uh, and then all the momentum is with the Bengals. The Bengals make great adjustments, and then all of a sudden, this Kansas City's offense and Patrick Mahomes looks awful. And Mahomes makes, you know, a careless mistake, gets intercepted by the D linemen, they get a field goal, then they get a touchdown and a two-point conversion. We're all tied up. Then Joe Burrow on that field goal drive, he escapes like multiple sacks. Like uh, Chris Jones has him, and he gets out of it, runs for seven yards. Amazing. And then Evan McPherson's got, a, you know, one hell of a leg, and they do great. And then at the end, once again, we're all sitting there. It's 24-21 Bengals. And we're like, that's too much time for Patrick Mahomes. And Tony Romo, he's basically saying, like, he's basically already telling us that the Chiefs have scored. He's like, all right, Chiefs have scored. You got to work on getting the ball back. You know, let them score. And the Bengals don't. And they almost, like, get a fumble. Like, get a fumble recovery. Because on that, they get them down. I think they're at the five-yard line again. And they can't get in. And it's third down. And they're all just playing back. And they're giving Mahomes all the time in the world. And finally, a guy rushes him. And Mahomes fumbles. And the ball goes back about, like, 15 yards. And luckily, for the Chiefs, an offensive lineman of theirs falls on top of it. Or else the game's over then. Bucker makes the kick. We go into overtime. Chiefs win the toss. And once again, everyone's like, well, this game's over. Nope. First, Mahomes almost throws a pick six on the first play. Eli Apple should have caught it. And once again, Eli Apple had some a lot of bad in this game, but a few really good plays. So I can't really dog him a bunch. But that interception he should have caught was definitely the epitome of, this is why you're a defensive back, not a wide receiver. Those are those moments. Like his high school or college coach is like, this is why I made you a DB. Also, I may be assuming here, maybe it was always a DB, but who knows. Um... But then second play, another bad pass. Third down, chucks it down to Tyreek Hill, gets picked off. And then a couple good plays later, and boom, they're in field goal range for Evan McPherson. He ends up kicking, I think it's like a 38-yarder. You know, Chiefs are gone. Bengals are moving on to the Super Bowl. Good for them. You know, I'm really happy. Cincinnati is like a really likable fan base. Uh, I liked those old, you know, Bengals teams that had Andy Dalton and had Carson Palmer. So I'm really pulling for the Bengals, honestly. Uh, Also, I wanted the Bills to win last week. So kind of felt good to see someone beat Patrick Mahomes. So crazy. But that's the worst Mahomes I've ever seen him look. Honestly, he looked like a rookie in that second half. He looked real bad. So that'll be an interesting adjustment over the offseason. And yeah, Bengals, that's going to be... A jungle, like no pun intended, for them down in LA. Because based on what we saw the NFC title game, I think home field advantage is going to be for the Bengals. Because in the NFC title game, we had the 49ers and the Rams. And the Rams, who were at home, were 
heavily outnumbered by 49ers fans to the point that the Rams had to do a silent count, which you never do at home. So that makes me think that you're going to see a ton of Cincinnati Bengals fans in SoFi Stadium for the Super Bowl. Um, The NFC title game honestly wasn't as riveting to me just because he didn't have a huge comeback or anything. Both teams I easily could have expected to win. Both teams honestly didn't deserve to win. Um, They both played okay enough to move on. Matthew Stafford, I'm happy for him making his first Super Bowl after languishing in Detroit. Uh, Cooper Cup continues to amaze me because he's doing number one wide receiver things, which include, like, for me, the number one thing of a number one wide receiver is they can still get the ball when everyone knows the ball is going to them. Like, you could know the ball is going to Randy Moss, but he was still going to catch it. It didn't matter. Same with, you know, Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson could be doubled up and Matthew Stafford's going to throw it to him because he's probably going to get it. Joe Burrow's doing that with Jamar Chase now. Devontae Adams, Aaron Rodgers. That number one dude, he gets that ball because you're like, I'm, you know it's coming this way. There's nothing you can do about it. And that's what he's doing. But the amazing thing with Cooper Cup is like, there's nothing, of, and the amazing thing is that there's nothing amazing about him. He runs great routes. Besides that, he's not like the fastest wide receiver there is. He's not the biggest wide receiver. So I don't know what it is, uh, but he's really good. OBJ is a great one-two punch. He had a great game. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how that goes in the Super Bowl. Um, If they get the run game better started, I think that's a big thing for them. Uh, Jimmy G looked bad, and their offense just looked terrible. As someone who watches Iowa football... That's who the 49ers remind me of. A decent quarterback who hopefully doesn't make a bunch of mistakes and your defense hopefully either scores a touchdown or like gives you like a turnover in like plus territory. That's what the 49ers probably have been hoping for all season. And you can't win a title that way. Or at least not easily. Not without like a transcendent defense or like a transcendent running back. And they don't have that. They have Debo Samuel, who's an amazing all-around player, but like... The Rams have a great D-line, and they're just going to stuff the box and be like, all right, Jimmy, can you beat us? And the answer was no. Uh, So the 49ers move home. Kyle Shanahan was calling some real bad plays at the end of that game. But, you know, maybe he felt handcuffed by his quarterback. We'll never know. But the Super Bowl is going to be an interesting matchup. I'm excited for the uniform matchup personally. I'm hoping we get Rams in blue and then the Bengals in black, but I think we're going to get I think we're going to get the Bengals in black and then the uh, Rams in white. I don't know why. I just have a feeling. But the helmets are going to be great uh, against each other personally. I like it. I just like the uh, great amount of different color that's going to be there. I think the most interesting matchup is going to be that Bengals offensive line versus that Rams defensive line. That'll be the whole game. Because if they can hold up, then that secondary of the Rams is not very good. You got Jalen Ramsey. Okay, Ramsey, you're going to cover one of these three guys. You want to cover Jamar Chase? That's fine. T. Higgins just had like a 100-yard game. It was going off against the Chiefs. What about Tyler Boyd? So that's a three-headed monster you got to deal with. Um, So I really think that's the matchup to watch in the Super Bowl. I'm hoping the Bengals win. Um, I don't know who I'd put my money on, though. I'll let you guys know by next week. Uh, But yeah, that was the NFL Championship Weekend Recap. Hope you guys enjoyed it. 
But now let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. That is the Black Sox scandal. Let's get into it. So let me paint you a picture. It's September 21st, 1919. World War I has now been over for about 10 months, going close to a year. Uh, the United States is trying to re- return to some sense of normalcy after World War I. Uh, obviously, World War I, you know, changed forever the people home and abroad, uh, like, you know, for better and for worse, no matter, like, no matter which way you look at it. But people, once again, they tried to go back to what they were used to even though they, you know, endured a horrific war that eventually would sadly get a sequel. Um, But that's not the point. So part of normalcy is sports. So, and the American pastime at the time was baseball. You know, people still say it's America's pastime. I think ratings would disagree. But at the time, a juggernaut in baseball was the Chicago White Sox. That's a sentence that hopefully I'll get to say soon with... uh, you know, the White Sox being my favorite team and this young, really good young team hopefully wins a few World Series so I can call them a juggernaut, but we're not there yet. And that's a conversation for another day. Uh, the Chicago White Sox, though, are about to go into a World Series against the Cincinnati Reds in a best of nine series, which is also just a funny, weird fact they used to do best of nine. Seems like a weird, arbitrary number, but that's not the point. But this series is unlike others because one team isn't trying to win. Or that's how the controversy goes. So first, it's called the Black Sox scandal uh, because of a couple things. So first, uh, it's because of how their uniforms looked. So Charles Comiskey was notoriously cheap. It's unfortunately, he was the owner of the White Sox. Comiskey, the, you know, the stadium was named after him. Uh, he was notoriously cheap. It's unfortunately something a you know, a history that the White Sox were doing to repeat with, we currently have another cheap owner in Jerry Reinsdorf. You may argue he's not cheap. I would argue very much he is based on how much money he makes on revenue from that stadium and his deal that he pays in that stadium and the money he doesn't put into that team. Don't get me started. So uh, we're going, we're talking about Comiskey though. Gotta stay focused. Uh, Comiskey was notoriously cheap, even though, you know, records have like come out and shown that the White Sox were one of the highest paid teams at the time. They weren't, you know, the way that we look at athletes today. They weren't making hand over fist money. Uh, And going back to him being cheap, why they're called the Black Sox, basically Comiskey, like there were such little things that he did to save money, including one is that he didn't believe in, you know, paying for the laundry of the players in their uniforms. He's like, the players should pay for it, not me. You're the one who got dirty in them. So the players are like, no, that's not how it's going to work. And so they kept on playing in them to the point that they got dirty and like took on a darker shade. So people called them the Black Sox. Eventually, uh, Comiskey does get them cleaned, but then he deducts the pay out of, you know, he deducts the money out of the player's pay. So it's little, it's like little shit like that. It's like, all right, you are a penny pincher. So fast forward, and the White Sox are going into the World Series. Heavy favorites, and there's a lot of players who are looking to make some money because even though, once again, like I said, they are making more than like the average American worker, it's not like today because there is no free agency. There is no changing a team. Like You can make trades, 
but there was no free agency because uh, of something called the reserve clause. If a team offered you a contract and you said no, like if you were on that team, they offered you a contract, you said no, you couldn't play for any other team. So basically, you were stuck, uh, which sucks, but there was no union or anything at that time, so there wasn't really anything they could do about it. So you have a bunch of players, some of them near the end of their career, who are like, okay, maybe I'd rather make some money than win the World Series. So on September 21st of 1919, there's a meeting that happens in Chick Gandel's room to fix the World Series. So there's multiple people in the room. Uh, I'm not going to get into like every minute detail, but like the biggest name of the people who's not in the room is Shoeless Joe Jackson. And we'll talk him about Shoeless Joe more, but Shoeless Joe is one of the notorious, you know, eight men out, eight men banned from baseball. It's brought up numerous times throughout testimony and throughout just like journals and stuff that Shoeless Joe never met with any gamblers. He never met with any of that and was only handed money once and kind of like got it instantly when he was on the road and then he put it down and that was kind of it. But it was like a large sum of money to the point that, um, you know, you can, you know, cry foul if you want to. But Shoeless Joe is not there. But he is mentioned by um, the players who want to fix the World Series as a participant. It does later go on to say, though, that Gandil and some of the other guys mentioned Shoeless Joe, uh, you know, Joe Jackson, basically as a way to get other people involved. So because Shoeless Joe, even to his death, denied this ever happened. And that is a good point that some people make with this, you know, with this about if Shoeless Joe was involved, because, yeah, it would make sense that you would say, you know, hey, the biggest guy's involved. If he's involved, why wouldn't you be? Like, let's pretend that the Lakers were going to throw the NBA Finals a couple of years ago. If you wanted to throw it and LeBron wasn't on board, you're probably not going to get involved. But LeBron, if LeBron said he was involved, maybe you would. It's going to up your chances of people maybe getting involved. But keep going, basically, is that basically a bunch of players agree, yeah, let's fix the World Series um, because this extra money would be good. They were all offered $5,000 to throw the World Series. Uh, to give you an idea of how much that is, $5,000 in 1919 is about $75,000 today. So it's a good, you know, you know, I'm not going to sneeze at seventy five grand. You know, surely in my position, but you know, obviously athletes today—that is—that's fine money. But things have changed, and by fine, I don't mean like just fine. I mean like I remember NBA players getting fined that much money for like getting too many technical fouls. <laughs> At least I feel like I have. I might be thinking this. So, uh, word starts getting out before Game One of the World Series through the press box and other things that. There might be a fix-in on the World Series. And, like, there's one uh, newspaper puts out a poem that says, like, hey, it doesn't matter who wins as long as, like, it's a fair game played. So it's like everyone kind of knows because it seems like no one can keep their mouth shut. But we won't know until the game is played. And the game starts and Eddie Kikati is pitching. First pitch, strike. Second pitch, he hits the Cincinnati Reds batter. And that was the signal to the gamblers to be like, yeah, the fix is in. We'll do it. And then the Reds would go on to win 9-1. to one. And this becomes kind of a trend. So let me quickly run down the games for you. Because uh, once again, this is a best of nine. 
So game two, the Reds win four uh, four to two. Game three, Reds lose three to nothing. Game four, the Reds uh, the Reds win two to nothing. In game five, the Reds win five to zero. But then we go on after game five, and we have a problem. So here's the problem. Uh, the White Sox are down 4-1 to one in the series, one game away from losing the World Series, and they haven't got paid yet. And they're like, maybe we're getting screwed this entire time. And if they're not going to pay us, we might as well win the World Series because we'll get some money for that at least. So they go and win Game 6 and Game 7, uh, both of them 4-1. to one. So now they're going into Game 8, looking to tie the series. Before that can happen, though, a bunch of gamblers and other people involved in the fix threaten the players and their families with bodily harm, which obviously would terrify anybody. Lefty Williams, who is the pitcher, who did lose all three of his starts, then proceeded to have a terrible game, like as expected, as he was someone in on the fix, including giving four back-to-back hits, allowing the Reds to get three runs until he was pulled out of the game. And then the Reds would go on to win, you know, 10 to 5, ending the World Series. The entire time, people are extremely suspicious of what's going on. Because, once again, like, people went into game one suspecting, hey, there's something up. And then the White Sox are making uncharacteristic errors, like, just simple plays they should be making. They aren't, like, decisions that they make don't make sense. For example, there's one where Shoeless Joe is throwing it in and one of the guys who is in on the fix deliberately cuts off the ball to make sure that it doesn't get to home plate. Just simple things like that that a team like in a veteran team wouldn't be making unless they were trying to lose. Uh, So, you know, fast forward, and like I said, all the players get five grand, which is the equivalent of $75,000 today. And Gandal, who, you know, Chick Gandal, who had the meeting, he's kind of the mastermind of the whole thing. He gets $35,000, which is the equivalent of $522,000 today. So pretty handsome payday. If I was one of those other guys, I'd be kind of pissed off about how much money he got. But I guess it is what it is. Right after, like, the season, investigations begin. And the grand jury, you know, like, there's people brought in, you know, multiple, and you know, reports. People are interrogated. And the grand jury indicts eight players, and instantly, I'm pretty sure out of spite, uh, after the eight players are indicted, Comiskey gives bonus checks to the manager and the 10 players not implicated that was about $1,500, which is uh, about $19,400 today. That is the money, the bonus money they would have got if they won the World Series. So basically, right when they get indicted, he's like, just to rub it into the wound a little bit more. And once again... You know, maybe I shouldn't be painting Comiskey as the bad guy here because it was his players who threw a World Series. But I think as a White Sox fan, this is where I'm a little less, you know, my bias comes in where it's like I'm used to cheap owners and they annoy me. But it is what it is. So this is going to trial. Before the trial even starts, there's key witnesses that are sick. Uh, There are confessions of Kakati and Shulis Cho Jackson that get lost eventually, like later on in history. Like it's they're found in possession of Comiskey's lawyer. But for a long time, like no one could find it. 
And so because of that, both men recant their confessions. So supposed confessions, because once again, no one has them anymore. So, and Shoeless Joe, like, denied being involved, uh, like I said, for the rest of his life, until his death. And there's many players who say he wasn't involved, he wasn't at any meetings, uh, besides the one time he got paid, like, it wasn't like he was interacting with anyone. But no matter what they could do, it didn't help. So, fast forward through the trial, um, there's really some famous moments, including Comiskey, He's brought up there, uh, and he gets so mad during the questioning that he stands up and, like, shakes his fists out of anger, which is hilarious that it actually happened. When I saw it in the movie Eight Men Out, I was like, all right, like, that's a funny characterization of him. But the fact that it actually happened is hilarious. Uh, The evidence used against the players in the trial is obviously – you know, they have testimony from multiple people. They originally had the confessions that they no longer had. And then Sleepy Bill Burns, uh, he turns state's evidence. And basically he says, like, hey, here was the plan. Here's all the people involved, yada, yada, yada. Uh, after all that's happened, though, one thing that some people tend to forget, or at least I feel like people forget, uh, the White Sox players involved were found not guilty. They were found not guilty of any crimes. So a lot of people thought, well, not a lot of people. There's some people thought maybe this was the end of it, but Major League Baseball had some other plans for that. So after this all happened, a lot of the owners began worrying like, all right, what if other players try and do this? What if this becomes a pattern? So they decide they need to have like a commissioner. So they install a man named Kennesaw Landis as the commissioner. And they want to give him, like, some power, but not a lot. And he's like, and he's a former judge. He goes, I'll do the job, but I want uniform, like, no one can argue with me power. He wants basically, like, Roger Goodell, like, early to mid-2000s power. When it's like, I am judge, jury, executioner. Take it or leave it, boys. And they're like, all right, you can have it. So he comes out then and basically says, Hey, even though they're found not guilty, anyone who, you know, would throw a baseball game or would sit with a crooked player, um, because that's what some of these guys, some of them were just guilty by association, who people who got later got banned, um, they were just guilty by association. Anyone who would sit, you know, in a dugout with them or with a crooked player or anything doesn't deserve to play baseball. So he places eight players on the banned list, basically the ineligible list, and they stay on those lists forever. And these players are Arnold Gandel, Eddie Kikati, Oscar Felsch, Shulis Joe Jackson, Fred McMullen, Charles Risberg, George Weaver, and Lefty Williams. All of them are banned and are banned for their entire lives from Major League Baseball. And that's a ban that is still in effect today. There are people who have argued that, hey, some of the people don't belong on this list. And the number one person who is argued not to belong on the list is Shoeless Joe Jackson. So people argue that Shoeless Joe shouldn't be on the list for a couple reasons. One is that he was never at any meetings besides being told that 20 grand was going to be split between players after losses. Like, he really wasn't in on the fix, like, necessarily the planning-wise. For people who want to argue the other side of that, you know, as someone who enjoys a good debate, 
there is also for on the negative against them is that he did accept five thousand dollars after game the game four lost. So it isn't like he didn't take the money. Shoeless Joe has admitted, like he did say, like I knew about the fix, but I wasn't trying to lose. I played every game to win, and I left everything on the field. And his play kind of backs that up. He batted three seventy five. He had the only home run of the series. He had no errors, and he had six RBIs. So if he was trying to throw a World Series, he was doing a real shitty job of doing it. Um, so there's some people who say maybe he was trying to win those games. And maybe he was, but I think the thing that really hurts him is that he took that money. If he wouldn't have taken that money, I think it would help his case more. But he took it. It is what it is. Even though people have gone on later to say that, hey, we only mentioned his name because we want to get more people involved, give the fix some credibility, but... Still, uh, with him taking the money and all that and them losing, he's going down guilty by association. I think Shoeless Joe should still be in the Hall of Fame, though. With, like, let me be very clear. I'm for just put everybody in. Like, anyone, these scandal guys, whatever. Because in the Baseball Hall of Fame, there's a lot of terrible people. Like, honestly, history-wise, you could look in, like, Ty Cobb, all these guys. Just look into them. Some of the things they did in their personal lives, professional lives, awful people in the Hall of Fame. There are people who used to take greenies and other things to get ready for games that are kind of ignored. It's just like, whatever. Put them all in. If you got to put them in a separate wing to make you feel better, do it. But put in these guys. Put in Pete Rose. Put in this. Yeah, put in the steroid guys. Put in Mark McGuire. I don't know if Mark McGuire's stats are good enough. Put in Barry Bonds, put in Roger Clemens, put in Sammy Sosa, put in Alex Rodriguez, put them all in. If you need to put an asterisk underneath their plaque that says, here's what they did, you know. Pete Rose, you know, the all-time hits leader, also bet on baseball. Go for it. But baseball acts so high and mighty when it's got a pretty dark history. Doesn't mean there isn't some, like, very nice parts of their history. There's definitely some dark moments there. So for baseball to just, you know, leave out Chulos Joe and other people always just sits wrong with me. Just baseball just, I don't know, it's very pretentious in its Hall of Fame and how it lets people in. Like, I get it that people can argue, hey, you know, some other sports let too many people in. Like, I love basketball. They let everyone in the Hall of Fame. You get in for your international career, your college career, contributor to the game. Everybody gets in. Uh, I think, you know, the NFL is pretty selective, but baseball, like leaving it so much up to the writers is such a problem because it's like some of these guys, they're people, they hold grudges. And so who they let in and who they keep out, you know, I really doesn't don't feel like it should be left to the whim of some of these, you know, guys whose, you know, heads are, you know, stuck in the mud. And they're just kind of like, all right, this is the way the game should be and how things should have been. And he was, you know, rude to me on one trip, you know, with Bonds. Like, for example, Bonds, you know, once again, did he use steroids? Probably. Was he a Hall of Famer before the steroids? Yeah. Go look at his numbers in Pittsburgh in early years in the Giants. He was already a Hall of Famer. But some people can't look past that. Some people can't look past, you know, how he was as a person. So they hold it against him, and they're going to keep him out. Same thing happened to T.O. in the NFL. T.O. was a first ballot Hall of Famer, but he was held out because there were some people who just couldn't stand him. 
And, you know, that's, you know, it's bullcrap. Once again, unless you're going to take out every terrible person in the NFL Hall of Fame and the MLB Hall of Fame, you got to leave your personal feelings out of it. Uh, but yeah, that's just my little two cents on this. Uh, kind of summing up my feelings of the Black Sox scandal. Obviously, it's a black mark on baseball and, you know, the franchise. But for me as a fan, I honestly don't think about it a ton. Like when I hear Black Sox, the Black Sox scandal, I obviously think about it. I'm like, well, that sucks. But I don't walk around going like, oh, man, I can't believe it was us. It's like it is what it is. Honestly, with the popularity of baseball going down, which it is, you know, hopefully they can fix that. Like I'm not worried about someone walking around and like telling me about the Black Sox scandal and being like, I can't believe your franchise did that. Happened over a hundred years ago. I can't do anything about it. I don't really care. Uh, obviously, the men who were involved, you know, greed got the best of them, as it does to a lot of people. So it is what it is. Uh, I'm just sad that, you know, once again, the White Sox just have a history and kind of just like a curse of having owners who are cheap. It doesn't excuse the behavior of the players. They shouldn't have thrown a World Series, but it just feels like we're in a we're in a cycle we can't break. So hopefully, maybe one day we'll get an owner that I like, but I don't like Jerry Reinsdorf. So that's all I have to say about that. But thank you again for listening to another episode of Whatever Wando. I really enjoyed doing this one. It's not a full-on deep dive, just like all my episodes. Like It's not like every nook and cranny of the Black Sox scandal. I could get into the testimony, the possible mob connections and all that. We're not really going to get into that. Um, but yeah, like I think the Black Sox scandal is always just one of those just intriguing stories because it's always going to be the example we could say like what if the other team was throwing it or shaving points like boom we got an example world series uh that we can always look back to and say hey it did happen once and it did and you know hopefully it never happens again uh but next week i'm gonna do something a little different what i'm gonna do is assemble so a kind of fantasy draft style i'm going to assemble the greatest college football team of all time See you guys next Wednesday.